the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. As I've been trying to understand what's going on over in the Ukraine, just trying to get my arms around it. David French has been somebody that I've really relied on his Mm -hmm. tweets, his articles. And he wrote something just fascinating that I want to just kind of get your thoughts on. It's titled this. David wrote the best of Christian compassion, the worst of religious power on the religious roots of war and the Christian response. And he goes on to say something that I've never heard that for Putin Part of the motivation of what's going on uh, is actually religious in nature. He writes this. As you watch the horror unfolding in Ukraine, you're watching two immensely important competing religious events unfold in real time. First, Russia's invasion is laced with religious elements. In many ways, it's a religious war representing religion at its worst. Second, as we watch the Ukrainian and international church race to Ukraine's side, we're seeing Christianity at its best. We're seeing the extremes of what Christians can do for evil Mm -hmm. and for good. And he goes on to describe the evil. And this is what's fascinating. I never knew that that Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church and kind of some of the changes Putin's been making are really at the driving force of here. There's a lot of religious language. I I don't know, Aubrey, I've always thought of Russia as just kind of this big atheist state, right? Like that Putin is just kind of this big atheist state. Me too, yep. French starts to go in through the history here, and he says to make this as simple as possible, Putin has fused Russian identity with the Russian Orthodox Church, Hmm. sees his nation and his church as a bulwark against Western decadence, Hmm. and is now not just attempting to seize his church's quote-unquote Jerusalem, but potentially forcibly reuniting his church after a schism it rejects. So in many ways, that's scarier because – when, when things run that deep, that's that's a lot of evil cloaked in religious language. Oh, absolutely. And it, it makes you it feels a little otherworldly to me or even um, hearkening back to like Henry V. Like uh, he decided that he would be the head of the church, you know, and there is this it, it's interesting to me that when you have a religious reason for yeah. violence nothing will stop you because if God is telling you to do this, if this is a holy mission, not just a desire, that's a, I mean, that's next level. It really is. And, and scary. Let's be honest. Scary. Yeah. David French goes on to write the religious dimension of this conflict is yet another reason why the cold war analogies are incorrect. Putin isn't trying to recreate the Soviet Union. The better analogy is to the deeply religious Russian empire Mm. that existed before the Russian Civil War. So in many ways, uh, he's trying to push back against what he would call and and the Russian Orthodox Church would call Western decadence. Yeah. uh, And therefore bring about now, interestingly, he's doing it by bombing hospitals and killing innocent people. Yeah. 
Uh, and that is – so French is saying this is the evil of the religious war. But at the same time, we're seeing the, Christ, uh, the, the beauty of the church, of the global church, stepping up and trying to feed and shelter and protect and pray for the people going on in the Ukraine. Uh, I just haven't thought of it this way. Like I've seen the good, but the bad here that in many ways we're seeing the good and evil of religion right now playing out before us in the Ukraine. Yeah. It's really interesting. And this is something that David French says as well. Like what we're seeing is uh, Russia as uh, the Orthodox Church there wedding itself to power, right? Mm. And then wielding violence to advance what they would consider God's kingdom on earth. Like that is just the most twisted version of a religious uh, advancement of God's kingdom. Yeah, yeah. But then what we're also seeing as he points out, you, we've talked about Zelensky. We've, we've seen so many Christians rising up, speaking out, uh, standing, you know, beside Ukrainian refugees, standing against the war. You are seeing... I mean, if this is good versus evil, which I think it is, you're seeing good rise up as well. Yes. And so, yeah, you're seeing the best of those of us who are trying to bring the kingdom to earth. And it is interesting. I mean, it's almost like a like a masterclass on what human beings are capable of. Mm -hmm. Right. And that yeah. we are so in us is so much evil and sin and simultaneously so much image of godness that we have the potential for doing these incredible things but both exist within us without the power of jesus you know making us whole yeah french writes in this circumstance national borders and national identities matter far less than the christian brotherhood with ukrainian churches and the shared humanity of ukrainian refugees this is christianity at its best it's not pacifistic. Its members are resisting tyranny with the force of arms, but its focus isn't on conquest, but rather compassion. Mm -hmm. A religious war is being met with a religious response. And that religious response represents the true face of the faith that Putin, uh, that Putin purports to defend. I, this idea that this kind of raises the stakes of this kind of religious War, Aubrey, let's bring it onto our homes. Let's bring it closer to home here, though. Uh, the danger of cloaking power in religious titles and religious words and even religious mission, right? Like God's calling me and, and it really just being a power grab and, and the issues of power, something we see all too often. But how do we know when that's what's going on and how do we best war? quote unquote, against that. I mean, I think you almost said it in the question. Anytime there's a power grab, right? Because mm. we know for Jesus, the follower of Jesus, the call is not to grab power. The, the call is to take up your cross and follow him. The call is to sacrifice. The call is towards humility. The call is fighting back against the powers that be, especially powers that are oppressing, killing people. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, so I, you know, I, I think the, the evidence and the fruit are pretty obvious here that if you're bent towards power, domination, oppression, and you're using violence to accomplish those means, that is not from God, period. That's right. That's and right. uh, anyone who, I, I don't know, I it makes me, you just realize how deceived Vladimir Putin is and that we have to keep praying. That's right. That's a good, that's a good reminder. And, uh, we do not have a faith that seeks power, that seeks personal power. We have one, uh, that seeks to watch out for the people who are being bombed and yeah. who are being oppressed and yeah. who are running for their lives. That is the mark of our faith. And we do that by getting behind them, as French said, 
uh, even with arms and and backing people. But uh, that that is what when you see power grabs going on, when you see people trying to advance themselves, that is not of Christianity. That is not the mission of God. That's not the kingdom yeah. of heaven. And yeah. so. Uh, thankful for David French and kind of raising the stakes yet again uh, and helping us understand what's going on over in the Ukraine. Well, speaking of what's going on in the Ukraine, there's a lot of refugees pouring into Poland and and we want to have that conversation. And with that in mind, we're excited to be joined by Seth Heidinger. Seth and his wife, Dina, serve as Word of Life missionaries in Poland. We're excited to talk to Seth about what's going on in Poland, how we can be praying for them next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And like everybody over the last couple weeks or months, we've been talking a lot about what's going on in the Ukraine and urging people to be praying and to be supporting in any way that you can support. Uh, and, and what's going on in Ukraine doesn't just stop at the Ukraine, right? Things are pouring over into neighboring countries, including Poland. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined by uh, a missionary over in Poland, Seth Heidinger. He is Seth and his wife, Dina, serve as Word of Life missionaries over in Poland. Seth, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Our pleasure. We really do appreciate you spending some time with us. Could you just tell us what do you and your family, you and your wife, where are you and what is it that you do in Poland? Sure. Um, so we live in a town called Zgierz, Poland. It's uh, right right in the middle of Poland, about 120 kilometers, so 80 miles from Warsaw. And we work with Word of Life. And so our main ministries, we have uh, Bible clubs that we work with, camps, conferences, and an English uh, program that we use to teach English in the Bible. Oh, it sounds so fantastic. What incredible work. And Seth, obviously, I'm sure your hearts are heavy as uh, you're watching your wife's country, Ukraine, uh, just undergo some horrific things right now. And we will, we really do want to hear how we can help and how you're helping Ukrainian refugees. But I wonder if before we even dive into that, can you just tell us how you guys are doing? How can we be praying for you? How, where are your hearts and your souls at right now? Well, I appreciate uh, thinking of us. Um, it's been a time unlike any other. And I was just talking with somebody else and, and kind of comparing it to sports that you practice for many weeks and years, uh, and then finally there's the game. And, and I think this is one of those moments that we live our Christian lives. We do different things. We read the Bible. We pray. And there are different moments in our lives that it's really, it's like game time. Mm. And, and this is one of those moments for us. Absolutely. And Seth, as we said, you're in Poland. Now, those of us, you know, watching just on the news, we hear about the the scores and scores of refugees pouring into Poland and all that Poland's doing to try to help the Ukrainian refugees. Help us understand what's happening in Poland, the, the, the scope of the refugee crisis. And maybe are there ways that we back here in America can be helping? Yeah. Um, so Poland is neighboring uh, a neighbor country to Ukraine, 
And since the war has started, there's been, at last count I saw, 1.6 million uh, displaced refugees have, have come into Poland. Uh, some of them have moved on to other countries, but uh, just people coming, and some of them waited four days at the border hmm. and came with just a bag. Um, and a lot of them, it's mothers and children because hmm. most of the men could not leave Ukraine. And so they come they're really disoriented. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they're going to have a home to go back to. They don't know how long this is going to last. And so just a lot, a lot of uncertainty. And so here at Word of Life, God gave us a, an incredible property and we've been developing it and we've been developing it kind of as a refuge for teenagers to come and get away from the world. And we never imagined that we would be housing refugees from more here, mm. but God has given us that opportunity. And so people come, we allow them to stay with us at no cost. We feed them, give them a place to stay, give them connection to the internet so they can connect with their family back in Ukraine. And last night we had about 130 people staying with us. Wow. Um, and then uh, some of them, I think about 30 left today uh, going to other places. But people coming and going, uh, some are here for one or two nights. Others have been here a couple weeks. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And Seth, um, let's get practical for a moment. How can we help support some of the work that Word of Life is doing um, specifically with these Ukrainian refugees? Yeah. Um, the first thing is just to pray. And it's a time unlike any other. And these people need your prayers. But but also practically uh, to give. And the best way to do that is uh, at, at our website, wol.org. That's wol.org. And at the top, there's a banner. There's some different updates and also a place to give. Hmm. Uh, there's a Ukrainian care fund, which goes uh, 100% to to Poland and to other countries that are helping these uh, displaced people. Yeah. And Seth, I, uh, talk to us about the church in Eastern Europe. Talk to us about the church in Poland and the Ukraine. Uh, what is God? What do you see God doing in that area, even in the midst of this unbelievable hardship? Well, in Ukraine, uh, they are one of the more evangelical countries in all of Europe. Uh, lots of Christians there. Uh, Poland is a very religious country, but a very small minority of the people would be evangelical Christians. So less than 1% uh, of the people in Poland are, are evangelical Christians. Wow. And one thing I see from that is since Ukraine is this uh, more evangelical country, the people are running, uh, running away from the war Many of them are Christians, and they're going uh, to Poland and, and other countries that are not that Christian. And so it's kind of like uh, in Jerusalem in the first century when there was persecution and 
people fled throughout the Roman Empire. Now we have these Ukrainian Christians are going to many different countries. And Seth, um, you know, in the middle of all of this, are you seeing God at work? And if so, how? Absolutely. Um, I see God protecting uh, our friends and family in Ukraine. I see uh, the gospel being shared with people who would not be open. Um, And I see other people just uh, their faith being strengthened because they really have nothing else and they, they have to trust God. Yeah. Seth Heidinger and his wife, Dina, serve as Word of Life missionaries in Poland, uh, where they're just doing great work uh, with all that we're watching on the news these days, just doing really important work. And you can support them at WOL.org. That's WOL.org. And there you'll see the Ukraine Emergency Fund and the Ukrainian uh, Care Fund. Again, that's WOL.org. Org. And as, as Seth said back here, one thing that they are asking us to do is to be praying. And so we would also ask you to be praying for Seth mm-hmm. and his wife, Dina, as they serve in Poland. Seth, thank you so much. We will be praying for you and uh, grateful for the work you're doing. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight, I feel like he is really kind of, he's got a voice right now speaking to not just the church, but what does a healthy church look like, right? Like he authored, along with his daughter, they authored the book that came out last year, A Church Called Tove, talking about kindness and talking about what needs to be at the foundation of a church beyond, you know, uh, glitz and glamour or whatever else beyond uh, the things that we often hold up as churches. They wanted to say, no, it needs to be kindness. It needs to be the, the, the fruits of the spirit. What should be at the foundation of church and what should we be looking for in pastors? And so Scott has really been speaking a lot about that as of late. And with that in mind, he wrote, uh, in his newsletter titled this, The Treadmill Called Success. And let me just read a portion of it, Aubrey, because I think it gets at something you and I have talked a lot about as pastors and as church leaders. He says this, churches through its pastors and leaders and volunteers can form into a culture of success. Such a culture then forms the pastors, leaders, and churches to fit into that culture That is the various measures of victories, winning, achievements, progresses, and advances. Getting caught up in these measures create a culture of success. Pastors can get snagged in the pull of success, prosperity, and fame. That Mm. pull is formed by comparison with other pastors and churches. Mm. Comparisons then give birth to competition, and competition gives birth to expectations and unmet expectations. They are inevitable and eventual Uh, give birth to frustrations and uh, frustrations uh, to denigration uh, of other pastors, churches, uh, and fellow workers. So real. And denigrations turn into personal and church depressions. Mm. And together, these are the treadmill 
to disillusionment. I just oh, need to sit back. I, I need to read that. that. Can we just like pause and cry for a few minutes? Like I like need that. to take a big, I need to take a big swig of my iced tea that's next to me. Yes. Wow. I need to sit back. Aubrey, that's uh. it. Like that's it. Big church, small church, mm. long-term pastor, mm. new pastor, I'm church plant, you. all of it. I wish people could understand what Scott McKnight just wrote there uh, is the treadmill of disillusionment yeah. he talks to that's causing pastors to quit, people to leave their churches, churches to get off mission, all of it. That Speak to that, please, because what he wrote there is gold. It is right on the money and it's a little it's a little even exhausting to hear and i think we're saying that because you and i have been on this treadmill like we know what it is yes. to compare ourselves to other pastors and other churches and then feel that sense of competition which we know isn't right that's not right like we know those things but then you're on the treadmill anyway and then soon you're frustrated but you end up being frustrated with god that's and right. i think that's what's so messed up in all of this. This is where I think there needs to be a whole other conversation about what is success in the church? What does anointing mean for a pastor? And what does true prosperity when we're thinking about the kingdom of God mean? Because we are so, we have so twisted these things in a way that it really is impacting our souls. Like the fact that you and I are reading this going, uh, so I think we're simultaneously <laughs> groaning, simultaneously groaning, and going, "Amen!" Like this is true. So the next question, though, is like, "What do we do, Brian?" That's and right. thankfully, Scott McKnight begins to answer some of that in this article. But oh my, yes, this is accurate. Yeah, I'd encourage you out there. Give, send this this just short newsletter to your pastor and be like, "Is yeah. this how you feel? Help me understand where you are because." It is. It is this idea of needing to be bigger and better all the time, comparing yourself to the other churches like that makes no sense. Right. Like we're all together on mission in a town trying to reach this community for Jesus. But instead, we spend our time looking at each other going, I'm bigger than you. I'm doing this. Oh, no, they're doing this. It's just mm -hmm. so insidious. Oh, yes. And McKnight writes this. He says three commitments transform the pastors I've talked with. And in most cases, such pastors have to sit down with the elders, deacons, co-minister, boards, whatever, for a talk about stepping back to core commitments. Mind you, some of them have had hard conversations. All of them have yielded wiser pastoring. So he said these three commitments that I've talked to pastors about are, are in his mind, part of the key, maybe the key. And he says they've had to have hard conversations with their churches, which mm. I think is fascinating. Wow. Uh, let me give you the three, and then I would love for you to let's talk about them. He says, okay. number one is faithfulness. Instead of the ambitions of success, wise pastors commit their days, their homes, their work, their gifts, their pastoring, their preaching, their teaching, and their walk with the Lord toward being faithful to God faithful to Jesus, faithful in the spirit, faithful to the scriptures, faithful to the great traditions of the church, faithful to their own calling to pastor people and mm. faithful to themselves. And yes, faithful to their spouses mm. and children and family. So faithfulness is one, two, is pastoral care. Instead of the ambitions of bigger is better and more is significant, wise pastors commit their lives to pastor, <laughs> catch this fave of mine, he says, who they've got, not those they've not got. 
Think about that. <laughs> Who they've got, not those they've not got. Okay. <laughs> and so he says, in other words, they care for those in their care, parishioners and co-ministers and staff and family, instead of striving for more people and more givers and more filled pews and chairs and more buildings and more of this and that and here and there. Such persons care for those they know instead of looking through them to the next visitor and the next big gift. Aubrey, that's so good. Not treating your people as a as a as a doorway to the next person uh, is such good. And the last one's personal giftedness. Instead of the ambitions of being everything to everyone, which can mean preacher, teacher, leader, entrepreneur, visionary, manager, mm. he keeps going uh, and going and going. Uh, he says again, instead of the pull of being everything for everyone, the wise pastor commits. Uh, her or his life around what she or he is called and gifted to do. Yes, work in the weak areas, but only because those areas are areas that need shoring up in our calling. So be who you are. I'm literally going to print this out. I was, and, like, Brian, I was out. just thinking the same thing. I am going to print this out. I need to read this every day. Talk about those three. Faithfulness, pastoral care, personal giftedness. I'm going to say something about all of them quickly. Faithfulness. I think this is the call. Like, this is what I feel like the Lord has been teaching me and you and I have been talking about. Like, rather than like, let's be success and climb the next hill and change the world and get the book deal and get more followers. What if we are just small in the day to we are faithfully small. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm saying this wrong, but in the small moments, in small ways, being faithful every single day. I I feel like that is the most like countercultural call right now. Just be faithful in the small things every day. And that is everything. Uh, Moving on, pastoral care. This one was really helpful because I do think this is a strange one, right? Because there is a call to make disciples who make disciples. And you see in the you know, early church numbers were growing by the thousands. And so we get this idea that our churches need to be growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. But uh, and we do need to have a, an outward ministry focus, but I do think not to miss out on like caring for the sheep that God has actually given yeah. us to shepherd and not not forgetting that. And then lastly, this one, this personal gift in this one, I think is so powerful because there is a there is a an unfair expectation that pastors are everything, right? You are everything if you're a pastor. And that's not right. It's not fair. And it doesn't allow the body of the church to contribute. And so I, it's, this is just a good word for everybody. I mean, so good. L- listen to how he ends it. This is you and me today. He says, someone needs to hear this today. Hear mm. what the spirit is saying to you. Thank mm. you for hearing me out. <laughs> so oh, like, wow. You are not wrong there, Scott. So such a good word, the treadmill called success. I would encourage you if you're a pastor, a church leader, or just someone who cares about a pastor or a church leader, give that a read. Well, coming up next, How do we understand the Bible? We all want to be Bible people. We want to understand the Bible. How do we go about doing that? Aubrey and I are going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. One of the main things that we do as pastors is try to read the Bible, understand the Bible, and teach the Bible, and help people do the same thing. Would you say that's accurate? I think that's very accurate. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, 
let's say you're not a pastor and you are new to the Bible. What do you think off the bat some of the difficulties are when you're just reading the Bible for the very first time? Oh, that's really good. A, it can be, if it's for the very first time, it's like, is this one long story? Is <laughs> right, this, right. Why does it seem different? There's hard things that I don't understand in here. So I think that's one. Uh, and then two, it's just how do I apply this to my life? Like, what mm. difference does this make to me now to, to at all, you know, okay, so this person wrote this story thousands of years ago. Why should I care about this now? So how do I understand it and why should I care? Yeah, that's that's I think really, really accurate. How do I how do I make sense of this thing? Why does it matter for now? That's that's really, really accurate. And then I would say on top of that, which uh, goes along with your first point is there are confusing things in here, right? Like this is an ancient text. It's from a totally different culture. It's from several cultures. And sometimes, especially if you're an American Western person opening the Bible for the first time, you're like, what? Like, I don't understand some of this. So the fact that it's this totally other perspective can be a little bit complicated at times, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And yet we believe as Christians, it is so deeply important that as part of our faith, we know God's word and we're in God's word and we're developing a relationship with God's word. Um, and over at NIVBible.com, they posted something called How to Understand the Bible. And they um, they said a quote that I've heard before, and I think this is really helpful. It says this, even though the Bible is for us, it was not written to us, mm-hmm. nor was it written about us. And because of that, we understand that when we open the Bible, there's like a major gap, like I was just talking about historically and culturally. And so um, what this article says, I love this, they use the London tube terminology, we have to mind the gap somehow as we're reading the Bible. So um, Brian, before we dive into some of those gaps and how we begin to do that, let's just go back to something kind of foundational. Why is it important for Christians to read God's word? Oh, okay. That's not the question I thought you were going to ask. So I, I'll go with that. It, because we believe that it is the word of God, that he is, that God has spoken. Almighty God has spoken. Like we all, how many articles do we read? Books do we read? How many times do we say, God, would you just tell me what to do? Would you just speak to us? Mm. And you and I have said this before. We believe God speaks in miraculous ways and yeah. God speaks in dreams and whatever mm-hmm. else it might be. But we know that God has spoken in his word. And yeah. therefore, we can put our 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 hope in that. We could, That could be like a firm foundation. Like when you're going, yeah. what does God want out of me? What is God's plan for redemption? Yeah. What does God think about this? We have his word. And like you said already, it takes work. Mm-hmm. It takes mining the gap. It, it's mm-hmm. not like just, you know, it's not like uh, – fortune cookies that I just open up and oh, there's what it is. Right. But we know that God has spoken. And so to say almighty God has communicated with us and then ignore that word would be just all that it would really say is that we don't believe that God has actually spoken Mm -hmm. with us or that it matters. And so that's why we have to be people of the word because we long for God to speak. And the primary way we know that he has already spoken is in his word. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So with that foundation in mind, We're diving into reading the Bible. We're trying to understand the Bible. And here's what this article at the NIV Bible says. It says that there is a real danger if we become overly familiar with the Bible. And here's what they're talking about in the sense that we read our own experiences into it. Mm 
Mm. We have to remember that the biblical world was rather unlike our place and time. People who work in Bible translation deal with this problem all the time. I mean, just how much of the Bible can you translate into a culture and how much do you have to leave untranslated? Here's an example they give. When Bible translators first came to Papua New Guinea, they had a problem. How do you say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to people who have never seen a lamb and who have no idea what a lamb looks like or how lambs were used for sacrifices and meat in the Middle East? I think that's a really uh, interesting example here. They continue because I want want you to hear this and we're going to unpack this, Brian. This uh, article says, in Papua New Guinea, they do have pigs, which were symbols of prosperity and wealth. So you could say Jesus is the pig of God who takes away the sins of the world, but probably not because that would create confusion. Mm. Best to leave it as lamb. But then when someone asks, what is a lamb? You explain it to them. So we begin to see how complicated this is. I'll never forget our time in um, in Zambia. We were reading a passage of scripture where uh, I believe it's a psalm. He, uh, he washes our sins as white as snow. Okay. And they were like, we've never seen snow. We know what snow is. We've never seen snow. So what does that even mean? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And that was a really interesting thing to unpack uh, in in doing Bible study with our friends in Zambia. So, okay, Brian, what, what do we do here? Yeah, first of all, we trust that the Bible is clear, right? There and, you go. And we yep. trust that we can know what God is saying. This yes. is not like some Nicolas Cage movie that we're Uh trying to decipher. And it's like, you're like, that's impossible. So we have to start there and trust that scholars have done work through the years. There's a ton of resources that we can engage with, right? From Mm -hmm. commentaries to books, to whatever, to the, to the internet. Uh, But beyond that, we just have to, uh, understand. I think a lot of us want to read our Bibles. Like I, I mentioned before, like fortune cookies and just go, I open it up for two minutes yeah. in the day and it tells me exactly what I need for my day. And I go back. No, it takes work. Yeah. Like, all right, what was going on in the first century church here? How do, what does that mean for now? Because mm-hmm. we do get in trouble where we think God has written this to 21st century America. Right. No, it, this right. was written by particular people in a particular time right. with a particular message that is timeless. And so right. we can go down that road. And so doing a little bit of work, but I think at the outset, trusting the God of the universe has spoken. He has spoken through his yeah. word. We can trust that. Yeah. Uh, but now we have to handle it with care mm-hmm. and we have to handle it like it is the word of God and do the work and understand that it's not just going to be easy and that these things come up. Sometimes passages are hard to decipher. And so we do it in community. We do it with resources yes. and and understanding that God's word is still living and active. And I think that's really the key, Brian, something you just said. We do it in community and we do it with resources because the last thing I think we ever want to send the message, um, it, the last message we ever want to send is you can only read the Bible if you understand all of the cultural differences and the context. No, 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 because then only very scholarly educated people would read the Bible. The Bible's for everyone. Like you just said, like God is speaking through his word, period. And so I do think we can trust that we have what we're meant to have through some of the translations, but there are things we can do. We can read different translations on our uh, Bible study apps, right? Mm -hmm. We can uh, go to a website like biblegateway.com and read commentaries. We can buy it for people who have resources. There are 
uh, Bibles that are actually like cultural background Bibles that have articles in them that help you understand the background of certain passages and what things mean and what they're saying. And so I do think we're living in a day and age where we have so many resources at our fingertips, including just, you know, the Bible study app, the Lifeway Bible app, doing something like that every single day and then taking those moments to dive a little deeper will only increase, I think, your love of the word and kind of expand your like, oh, wow, God is so amazing when we begin to unpack some of those uh, deeper levels of scripture as well. Amen. For sure. For sure. Be people of the word. That's there what you we go. want out of you. We be yeah. people of the word. And uh, you that is a firm foundation to place uh, your hope on. Like that is God's word. He has spoken. And so treat it like such. Yeah. So good, Brian. Thanks for that. Well, when we return, we're joined by Dr. Danny Huerta from Focus on the Family. He's going to be talking to all of us about how we can approach difficult conversations with our kids, especially some of the hard things that have been going on the last couple of years. You are not going to want to miss that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so excited to be joined by one of our teammates and ministry partners here at AM 1160. That's Dr. Danny Huerta. He is the Vice President of Parenting and Youth at Focus on the Family. And you can tune in to Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. We're going to talk to Danny about all things parenting. He has a book about effective parenting, but also we want to talk to him about how can we process some of the difficult things that have happened in the past few years with our kids. Before we dive into all of that, Danny, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Focus on the Family? Well, thank you both for having me on the show. What an honor it is to to be with you. Yeah, I get to serve. I've been invited to serve as a vice president of parenting and youth at Focus on the Family. I also get to uh, serve as a, as a therapist for families and have done so for uh, more than 20 years now. And I uh, just love digging into areas of, of difficulty with families, uh, but also just coming alongside of, of families in times of crisis and helping them be more effective in that important, essential, foundational relationship with uh, within a child's life. What an honor it is to do that. We have uh, programs like Plugged In and Clubhouse, Club Junior, all kinds of great things for parents and kids that focus on the family, and I get to lead that. What an honor. That's awesome, Dave. Well, let's dive into the difficult ones. We are hopefully coming out of COVID right now. Things are getting more normal. Our kids are finally back in school with no masks and all of that. But what are the things parents should be watching for right now? Because this has been such a traumatic two years for our kids. What should parents be talking to their kids about? What should parents be doing as we kind of hopefully get back to normal here? Yeah, we've lived through it ourselves. You know, I mean, I'm a, a dad of two teens now, 18 and 16, and I love teaming up with my wife to uh, enter those intentional conversations with our kids. And I, I do think there are five core areas of mental health we need to dig into intentionally in our conversations. And the first one is our emotional world. What's going on in your emotional world? That's our initial uh, signals, our initial evidence that something is happening uh, in our world or we perceive something to be happening. And so as parents, we can be thought detectives and emotions interpreters with our kids. We can, uh, we get to do that um, on a daily basis, sometimes at very unexpected times. And that's actually 
the first trait of the seven traits of effective parenting that I talk about is adaptability. Mm. Entering our children's world and trying to see the world from their point of view, understanding the age and stage, their personality. The, uh, if you have a child that, that has a more anxious personality compared to a child that is more of a leader personality, their experience with news events is going to be completely different. Yeah. So you get to step into that as parents and, and ask questions. And the other part of the, the five core mental health areas are the, the mental life, the physical life. Are they sleeping well? Are they eating well, taking care of themselves? And then the relational world that kids are in right now and the conversations they hear, what they take in. And then the spiritual world. Do, do we think God truly is in control? Can we pray? And does God listen to that? Those are important conversations to be having with our kids on uh, big issues like uh, the war, the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, faith issues that are coming up. There are just all kinds of different things parents have been having to navigate. Mm. Oh, that's that's so helpful, Danny. And, you know, speaking of the war, you know, you just said you're a parent of teenagers. Brian and I have kids that are raging in age. And I know a lot of parents out there are wondering, how do we even begin talking to our kids about what's happening uh, in Ukraine? How do we begin to teach our kids to pray and trust God in the midst of that? Do you have any words of wisdom or encouragement for our parents who are listening? Yeah, first you want to look inward. Be self-aware. How are you coming across in your processing of what's happening? How much are you watching the news? What are you speculating on rather than than trying to find the facts and resting in where the facts are at and, and having conversation there rather than speculation of what could happen? And uh, there are many directions that things could go. And kids have plenty of good imagination. Sometimes parents uh, broaden that with their own anxieties and thoughts. So look first into how, how are your thoughts going? What's happening emotionally for you? Uh, that will help you with what actions, the wisdom you need to have to enter those conversations with your kids. And you begin with their thoughts. What are what have you been thinking about? What have you heard? What do you know about this? What are you wrestling with? Those kinds of questions are so important. And then looking at uh, helping them see how those thoughts are impacting the way they feel and experience the world. Uh, and then what actions you guys can take. What do you have control over? Can you pray together? Can you read uh, scripture together? Can you write uh, notes to families in Ukraine and figure out a way to get those there? Are there mm. ministries that are doing work in Ukraine and in other parts of the world that you can raise funds for or write letters through, uh, connect up with those ministries? Have your children be children of action, contributors mm. to other people's lives. That gives them a sense of purpose and control and calms down anxiety. That's good. And uh, Danny, you wrote a book called Seven Traits of Effective Parenting uh, that we'd encourage people to go pick up. But what are one or two of those traits? I know you've touched on some of them already, but what are some of those traits of effective parenting that you'd encourage people to kind of think about and point people towards? Yeah, and uh, I'd run, I'll run through the the seven real quick. So it's adaptability, respect, uh, intentionality, and then from there, steadfast love. And after those four comes boundaries and limits. Sometimes we begin with that, miss out on the other four. And then grace and forgiveness, you'll need that. And then uh, gratitude to create a more adaptive mind. And I would really, if there's a church or a group of parents that says, I want to be a seven traits parent, I would, I mean, I, I know that from the research that was put into these seven traits, in the background to it and in my counseling practice, I see parents 
be more effective compared to parents that have not learned about the seven traits and have not embodied those in their everyday day-to-day parenting. Really, parenting begins with our growth, our molding as we shape and, and speak into our children's lives. And I wanted to put together uh, seven easily remember, uh, memorable, I guess, uh, traits that parents can take with them in their back pocket every day as they're shaped in this invitation to be a parent. And then they can pour in healthy ways into their kids' lives imperfectly. And that's the beauty of it because that's where we can have love to a deep level. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited for parents to dig into the seven traits and to take those on, embody those and, and grow and invest in their kids' lives. And uh, what I'm hoping is that it creates uh, for a parent, a perception of having an invitation mm-hmm. into being a parent and an invitation to being co-creators of a contributor within God's kingdom story rather than just a consumer in this world. Mm -hmm. Mm, Amen. That's so good. Um, Danny, do you just kind of, as we begin to wrap up here, maybe have a story of one of these traits in your own parenting or or someone you've been working with? Just, you know, maybe give our listeners a story of a way that a parent has grown through one of these traits and how they saw like God's goodness in the middle of it. Yeah, adaptability. One of my favorite uh, stories from when my daughter was a a young little girl. Um, We were at the kitchen table and my daughter spilled her milk and it it went over. It went on some papers and some things. It was just a very inconvenient time. Usually those that wasn't supposed to happen (laughs) happen in those moments. And I I was I mean, inside the emotions welled up and I was about to just, "Ah, you know, I told you not to. I told you to be careful with that milk. And she, and when I looked into her eyes, that's that adaptability, looking at her emotional world, her world first, I just paused, looked into her eyes, thought for a moment, took those extra seconds, and you could already see, she already feels bad. I don't need to contribute to that. Mm. And so in that moment, I, I just said, uh, she actually, she told me, she said, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. And that mm. just softened my heart. And I said, man, that's so true. That's us. That, that wasn't supposed to happen moments that... Jesus forgives in our lives. And so I just, I said, well, hey, you know what? Let's clean it up. That's, uh, I guess my, my papers needed a little bit of milk. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, let's, uh, let's do this together. And I got to clean that up with her. I knew it was an accident and it wasn't at all intentional. And so that gave me uh, a, a closer relationship. Those moments give you either a closer relationship or a break in the relationship with your child. It either increases trust or reduces trust with your child. And those building blocks are so essential for your future relationship with your kids. And mm-hmm. you won't always do it perfectly. And that's the adaptability is, 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 is a key trait for us as parents because every day we're having to manage stress. And that's that adaptive side. And the other part of that is being able to gain perspective of the moment and how I need to show up for that moment to be the best moment it can be? What am I being invited into in that moment rather than this is just inconvenient? And uh, that has helped me throughout my parenting, my my role as a dad to uh, see what am I having to adapt to? What How am I being shaped today? And uh, what I like to say in the mornings is, hey, Lord, thanks for the invitation for a new mm-hmm. day. I'm excited to unwrap it right alongside of you. Help mm-hmm. me see what you need me to see today so that I show up well. 
Mm, such good word for all of us, Danny. We've been joined by Dr. Danny Huerta, the Vice President of Parenting and Youth at Focus on the Family. You can tune in to Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And you can order Danny's book, Seven Traits of Effective Parenting on Amazon or at store.focusonthefamily.com. Danny, thanks so much for being here with us today. Brian, Aubrey, uh, what, what an honor it is to have been with you. And I just want to add one place where people can go, and that's focusonthefamily.com slash parenting. We're constantly trying to provide many resources, free resources for parents there on all the difficult topics they're facing and just wanting to pour into parents as they pour into their kids. So thank you so much again. God bless you guys. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Danny. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. If you've missed any of today's show, we would love to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast, wherever it is you cast your pod, specifically because we have been joined by some fabulous guests, Hannah Weehunt and Christy Anthony of SOS International here to talk about the work they're doing around the world with women and children to help fight against human trafficking, to resource kids with uh, water and supplies and things they need for life. And so I don't want you to miss any of that. So please go back, catch up on our podcast. But right now, I want to invite you to be a part of the rescue and restoration of human trafficking victims through SOS International. During this month of rescue, we're praying that our listeners will provide 80 months of loving care to women and children who are making the choice to leave their lives of bondage and slavery. Your gift of $150 covers one month of their care, safe shelter, food, medical attention, counseling, restoration ministry, education, skills training. Basically, you will be giving them a chance at a whole new life. Amazing to think how much impact your gift will have in the lives of women and children who have been trapped in the slavery of the global sex trade. And if you give right now, a generous matching partner will double whatever you provide to give twice as much love and care to these women. I hope that encourages you to be extra generous. Please give your gift now by calling 866-343-4717. Again, that's 866-343-4717. Or if it's more convenient, you can also give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com. So Hannah and Christy, one of the things that we um, sort of touched on but didn't get to dive deep into enough is just what does SOS do? Can you just give us a big picture? What is SOS International and why does it matter? SOS International is a nonprofit organization and we go into underdeveloped communities all over the world and we help develop and secure at-risk children in those communities. So we do that through four main programs. We give food, we provide water, we rescue and rehabilitate trafficking victims, and then we do kind of an overarching broad thing that we call community development, which includes education, mentorship programs, farmer care, just kind of any area of that community that needs developing. We come in and help develop that to secure the children there. Oh, that sounds so essential. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of this and that our listeners get to hear about it. Can you tell us a little bit about the problem specifically of human trafficking? What does it look like in the various countries? And perhaps share some stories about some of the things you've gotten to be a part of. 
This past summer, we were down working in a project, and I've been in the fight against human trafficking for 14 years, but I have a seven-year-old little girl, and for the first time, I had taken her with me, and I didn't intend to take her to a red light district. Wow. <laughs> but we, we turned the corner, and all of a sudden, we had to walk through part of the red light district to go where we were going. It sounds like an awful mom moment <laughs> when I word it that way, but it just, just be yep. real here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Those moments. Anyway. And I walked with my seven-year-old daughter through the corner of a red light district, mm. and I, there's a fierceness of a mama that, that rises up in you yeah. and you look at yeah. men, begin to look at your daughter that way. Mm. And it could have been us that yeah. were born into those communities. Right. Yeah. Right. The fact that my family is not food insecure is, right. is nothing that I did to deserve or earn. Like that's just where I was born. And honestly, for me, it's the grace of God in my life. But at the same time, these girls, th- this could be our moms, our sisters, our daughters, yep. and somebody has to do something because yeah. if it's not okay for my daughter, it's not okay for anybody's daughter. And if it's not okay for my sister, it's not okay for anybody's sister. And so we have to step back and stop looking at it as an us or them issue, or they chose it and allow that fierce heart of a mama bear or a sister or a friend to rise up and say, if that's not okay for mine, it's not okay for any. Right. And it has to be stopped. Right. I I think too, I mean, the reality is they could be our own daughter, sisters, and moms. The reality is these girls and young women are our sisters, right? And they are our daughters and and they are our mothers and they are our aunties. And so to take this call very seriously to partner with SOS International to, like you've said before, this is literally the difference between life and death. This is literally the difference between emotional hell and a life-giving reality. This is the difference between not having a future and having a future. And that we do bear the responsibility, those of us who have the ability, have the privilege, whose daughters are not out on the streets. Like we have the ability to make a difference now with that donation of $150. You can give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com or by calling 866-343-4717. I mean, this is so hard, but what a beautiful invitation that we get to partner with SOS today in doing really the work of God in bringing rest and life and dignity back to these precious, precious children. I think sometimes when we hear and we we allow it to hit close to home, right? When we allow it to imagine, yeah. oh, this could be my daughter. Sometimes like fear can rise up in us mm. and that can also make us want to just distance it. I don't know if there are more for us than there are against us. And when we stand in community and when we decide to be shoulder to shoulder with these women, with these traffic girls, it becomes an unstoppable force. That's right. So yeah, we're coming up against unimaginable things, but man, we can also be unimaginable. And there's Mm. a fierceness, like Christy mentioned, that mama fierceness. There's a fierceness that can stare down impossible odds and see impossible things happen. There's a story in the Bible about one of King David's daughters named Tamar, who's raped by her half-brother. It's a devastating story in scripture because she ends up living her entire life in isolation. She She's wearing this beautiful robe because she's a daughter of the king. And after this rape, she she tears the robe and she takes it off. And instead of a, a crown, she puts ashes on her head. And the Bible says she lives her whole life in isolation. And one of the frustrating parts to me when I when I have read that passage of scripture in the past is 
her father was King David. He was a man of power. And it says that he got, this is from second Samuel 13. He got angry. He got furious, but then he didn't do anything. And I've always wrestled with that as a person who reads scripture. Like that can't be the end of that Bible verse. Like surely the Bible verses, David got angry and then he went and rescued Tamar. Surely the Bible verse is David got angry and then he went and took his son Amnon and threw him in prison. And so that gap to me has felt frustrating as someone who, who reads it and wrestles with the word of God. And I, I was just thinking about SOS and thinking about that story, reading Isaiah 61, where Jesus actually quoted this, but it says that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And then Isaiah says, and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I think about Tamar with the ashes on her head instead of her crown and Tamar with that robe being taken off and she's wearing a spirit of despair. But God said he's going to do something different, that God's going to remove Tamar's ashes and put a crown back on her head. He's going to remove that torn garment and put on a garment of praise. And that's the work of SOS. The reality is, is that you are in these places where these girls are in isolation and desolation, literally like living with ashes on their head. But instead, listeners, you get to partner with SOS right now to be a part of putting crowns back on, putting new robes back on, new life back on, and really creating a new story, moving from silence to action and doing a new thing today in the lives of women and girls around the world by partnering with the work of SOS International. You can give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com or by calling 866-343-4717. We hope you are encouraged by that conversation. And thanks again for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.